AHLA is pleased to present this special series highlighting the top 10 health law issues of 2024, where we bring together thought leaders from across the health law field to discuss the major trends and developments of the year. Support for AHLA in this series is provided by PYA, which helps clients find value in the complex challenges related to mergers and acquisitions, clinical integrations, regulatory compliance, business valuations, and fair market value assessments, and tax and assurance. For more information, visit PYAPC.com. Hello, and thanks for joining our podcast. I'm Kathy Reap, a senior manager with PYA. I'm honored to speak with Kevin Malone with Epstein Becker Green on issues surrounding mental health parity. The Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act, also known and this is a mouthful for an acronym, the MHPAEA provides group health plans and health insurers that um, offer mental health services. It requires that they provide services and benefits at the same level as they would for uh, physical health benefits. But there's been a lot of issues over the years since the act was originally passed. And so Kevin and his partner um, have written an article um, as part of the top 10 related to the Mental Health Parity Act and the provisions that have been um, revised or proposed for um, future years. So Kevin, can you give me a little bit of information about yourself and your your interest in the issue of mental health parity? Thank you so much, Kathy, um, and it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. Um, I, as you mentioned, I'm a partner at Epstein Becker and Green, and with my colleague David Shilkut, my co-author, we co-lead our mental health parity practice. And I've been at the firm a little over seven years, and I've worked on parity uh, since I joined the firm. And my personal background is uh, I became a lawyer after a previous career in public policy roles in the federal government starting um, back in 2010, early 2010, in the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration in the Obama administration. And that's really where I was introduced to parity uh, back in, uh, from a policy perspective, not as a a lawyer, working on the initial commercial market parity regulations and efforts to inform and educate providers and health plans uh, about the act under the interim final rules before the first commercial market parity regulations were adopted in 2013. Um, I worked on some of those on behalf of SAMHSA as a, an advisory role to the uh, tri-departments in drafting those regulations. And then I went over to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and I participated in drafting um, the, the very first draft of the Medicaid mental health parity regulations that apply to alternative benefit plans, CHIP, and Medicaid managed care. My colleague, David Shilkut, came over and he did most of the writing and cleaning up after me uh, uh, on on the Medicaid regs. So um, for me, it's something that I've worked on um, as a a policy person in my first career and now have um, been deeply involved in it from both a policy and legal perspective uh, in private practice. Thanks, Kevin. We suddenly have a, a proposed rule. I think it came out in July of this of 2023. I almost said of this year, but we're just starting off in January. Um, there have been a lot of updates to the rule since it was originally published, but what makes 2023, July 2023 different? 
Yeah, it's a great question, Kathy. And you know, we we could have written a lot more uh, than we did about the implications of uh, the proposed rule. Um, but you know, as you, as you point out, parity guidance has been um, steadily evolving since it's uh, the the passage of the 2008 Act itself. Um, and you know, I think the way that I think about it is that the the initial commercial market rule that was finalized in 2013, um, you know, really did a lot of blocking and tackling related to setting up the rubric, the nomenclature, you know, this sort of new set of terminology about the concept of mental health parity to many different aspects of insurance benefit design. And uh, for that reason, it focused a lot on things that were considered to be the, you know, primary problems in insurance market discrimination at that time. Those are things like, um, uh, annual or lifetime dollar limits on mental health or substance use disorder benefits, things like quantitative caps on the total number of services or days or visits that would be covered under an insurance policy during a calendar year, um, and things like cost sharing and categorical exclusions. And so much of the 2013 regs focus on um, quantitative parity testing rules related to um, insurance benefit design in things like exclusions, annual dollar limits, quantitative caps, et cetera, and set up what at the time was a very novel methodology for um, performing an actuarial calculation for benefit design for the future year um, uh, and ensuring that those benefits were not discriminatory. And it's, it goes, that's really what most of the 2013 rule is about. There's a bunch of other issues in there related to disclosure, but things related to medical management and what came to be referred to as non-quantitative treatment limitations were really included in the initial commercial regulations only as like a, an afterthought or as a sort of a, a safety net to sort of prevent plans from moving discriminatory quantitative limits into soft caps or like like a really aggressive utilization management. That's sort of why they put forward the NQTL concept, which was not expressly identified in the uh, 2008 Act itself. And so in, from the 2013 rule until July of last year, there was voluminous sub-regulatory guidance sort of explaining and expanding upon that, that uh, those interpretations from the, the initial 2013 rule, particularly related to non-quantitative treatment limits. And then the Consolidated Appropriations Act sort of caught that back up in the statute, but the regs were then sort of out of sync. So you had the statute had been revised to sort of catch up with the non-quantitative treatment limitation um, compliance obligations, but the regs were now sort of out of sync. And so 2023 was like really the first full-scale rewrite of the um, actual regulatory regime across the different markets subject to parity at the federal level, um, other than Medicaid. And, um, and and so as a result, it's it's a very complex regulation. It sort of, it, it makes a bunch of technical edits to sort of uh, catch up from what was done uh, in the intervening years in sub-regulatory guidance. But then it actually goes far beyond that. And it uh, takes into it makes substantive policy changes related to the um, the 
obligation on health insurers and group health plans in proving that their medical management and network management activities are not discriminatory and adds whole other domains of compliance obligations that didn't exist prior to the proposed rule and well don't exist now uh, prior to finalization. Um, and so really the, the way that I describe it is that it it's really taking the focus of parity from being primarily on insurance benefits, cost sharing, quantitative caps, uh, annual lifetime dollar limits, and eliminating discrimination there, is now focused on the managed care practices of insurance companies, network administration, utilization management, medical necessity criteria. And that is now the front and center focus of parity. And Which is where we've seen their issues of denials and prior authorizations and things like that. On that that's end. that's where you have seen the biggest deficiencies in the audits that have been per mm -hmm. performed since the Consolidated Appropriations Act uh, dramatically increased the amount of federal audit activity. Um, and they they basically found that hardly any plans had um, comparability and stringency analyses ready uh, to effectively prove that they were not discriminatory. And so the and there can there's basically two things that drove the the focus on NQTLs. One is the the sort of documented evidence related to access that people continue to have difficulty finding access to network providers, and um, that is ascribed to network administration activities. And the other is that in audits plans weren't providing. Uh, analyses that were satisfactory. And so it's both a documentation issue and a substantive like epidemiological access issue. And those sort of came together in these new proposed rules. The uh, I, I tend to be cautious about ascribing too much weight to um, uh, sort of complaints about utilization management and denials because those are things that every provider in every aspect of the healthcare system and every consumer of healthcare services, medical, surgical, you talk to cancer patients and they're gonna be really upset about utilization management and denials. You talk to specialists in every, every field, you talk to hospitals, you talk to anybody, it's not a behavioral specific complaint about utilization management. Hardly anybody goes to utilization management and says, man, that was awesome, really loved that. <laughs> um, and so the like, for me, the, there are a lot of complaints and providers do often raise that they're subject to utilization management and denials in ways that medical surgical providers are not. But if you ask medical surgical providers, they would say the same thing. It's sort of everybody feels that they are that's, the, that's they're unfairly treated. Going into effect this year related to, for example, um, um, Medicare Advantage and other payers, exactly. payers in terms of prior authorizations and the like. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, so to me, I think that the, it, it is part of a, a broader uh, sort of federal government-wide uh, increase in scrutiny about managed care techniques in general, which I, I would describe as utilization management, medical necessity criteria, and network administration. Um, and the, the proposed rules for parity, in my mind, really constitute the most sweeping effort across the entire insurance industry at regulating those practices like in a generation, because as you you mentioned, the Medicare Advantage uh, rules that just went into effect five days ago for utilization management, you know, new committees 
sort of like like really significantly increasing the requirements about documenting the basis of medical necessity criteria for MA. Those requirements are much simpler and much less aggressive than what Parity is doing. Parity doesn't apply to Medicare Advantage, right. but the, the uh, mental health parity regulations that are proposed for 20, like that were proposed this year, if implemented as proposed, would be much more sweeping than what the Medicare Advantage regs were. And they apply to every every self-funded group health plan, every full insured commercial product in the entire country. And so that it's really hard to overstate like how sweeping a managed care regulation this is, because it's now really focused on the purpose, the basis, the process, the outcomes of everything that an insurance company or managed care organization does. Network administration, utilization management, medical necessity criteria, all of those things that are sort of traditionally under, except for like state utilization management regulations and state network adequacy regulations are like at the discretion of plants. It's like their business judgment for like arm's length negotiation, network building, et cetera. And parity now um, imposes very significant new restrictions on that entire process that are very onerous. You are subject to a presumption of being discriminatory in all of those activities unless you're able to maintain comparability and stringency analyses that rebut that presumption. That's what the comparability and stringency analyses are. And so it's uh, it's potentially transformative into the way the managed care industry works and gives the tri-agencies, Department of Labor, Treasury, and HHS, and State Departments of Insurance, uh, really sort of a... a a, a, a loophole into which they can reach in and micromanage every aspect of the managed care practices of an insurance company um, or a group health plan. So um, it's, it's a big deal. You know, the, the issue of how the um, NQTLs is, would change um, the whole issue of managed care. You've talked about as, you know, just in giving us some background on the rules, but, do you see this becoming a final rule? Yeah, I do. I mean, from all of our conversations with the, like, uh, in, 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 I wear a number of hats, and one of them is I'm the, uh, as a consultant to, to URAC and running their, uh, helping them run their only, the only commercial market accreditation program for uh, uh, health plans to uh, obtain third party accreditation for mental health parity compliance. Mm -hmm. We've met with folks in the White House and tri-agencies about our accreditation standards. And they've been super clear in all of those meetings and in my work as outside counsel to trade associations and uh, insurers that they have every intention of adopting a final rule before the Congressional Review Act deadline um, for the next uh, Congress. And so I think that they are absolutely set on finalizing a rule this year. When the implementation deadline is, is I think, potentially more likely to shift if they feel that there's going to be a lot of work uh, on the part of the industry to meet the new requirements. But they're definitely they're definitely very committed to finalizing something this year. In the past, um, as as an avid reader of the Federal Register, I apologize, but that is one of my favorite pastimes. Um, one of the things I've always liked to do is to go back as we approached a um, deadline on comments on a proposed rule and go out and look at what are people saying. Mm -hmm. And you tend to have 
A, a whole bunch of the same letter, okay? That often happens. You have the one-liners, I support this or I disagree with this. Um, and then depending upon the various rules, like if we, again, go back to that Medicare Advantage rule, comments were addressed from the payers versus the providers. So what kind of comments are you seeing out there as it relates to uh, the July 2023 proposed rule? Yeah, I mean, they're, they they had some of the most number of comments that they've ever received um, uh, on this proposed rule. And as you point out, many of them are form letters of support or opposition. But um, there have been a number of trade association um, comments from industry and from some national carriers um, that um, sort of take a pretty sophisticated approach in um, pushing back on some of the technical aspects of the rule. Um, and many of them are, are, they're all available and they're really uh, amazing reading. Um, the sort of Blue Cross Blue Shield Association, the Association for Braver Health and Wellness, all have very sophisticated comments that have been filed that and I would really think those would both be very different. Blue Cross Blue Shield Association versus the Behavioral Health Group. Well, the Behavioral Health and Wellness Group is a trade association of behavioral health specialty health plans. But I would think that their yeah. comments would be different than Blue Cross. There's a there's some differences and some overlaps. Um, yeah, but I think that the 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 big takeaway for me like from reading the comments is that industry feels that we're, we've sort of reached the point of diminishing returns with regards to the current approach of NQTL enforcement, which is that the approach on documenting these complex anal analytical documents for like very complex operational requirements in rebuttal of a presumption of discrimination don't necessarily result in substantive changes to the results with regards to outcomes, access, quality, et cetera. But they do, uh, uh, they are extremely labor intensive and expensive to produce and maintain. Um, and th they are unique in the field of discrimination law in the United States. Um, and so people like, a lot of the comments are sort of like, we should focus on results like quality measures, kind of like the, the a lot of people point to the way CMS oversees Medicare Advantage plans with like STARS measures, for example. Star ratings, yeah. Yeah, where like they're really focusing on like outcomes and like the, they spend an enormous amount of time producing like very clear technical guidance that's refined every year by very sophisticated administrators of outcomes measures and process measures that are used to evaluate whether plans are doing the right thing. And um, there's a lot of the comments say that parity oversight should shift kind of in that direction, where you have um, a real focus on things like like access, uh, things like um, um, uh, things like denial rates, things like overturn rates, things like like sort of really specific like results that impact actual people's lives, like real participant uh, experience. And then have the analytic documents, the sort of voluminous 40, 50 page documents that explain why things were developed, why they were implemented, like the sort of composition of the committees that developed them, all of the evidence behind each like technical decision and the design of it, that those are only constructed um, 
when the results show a disparate result, sort of like a, the burden shifts to the plan once the results show that. That's one of the some, something that the plans have pushed for. But in general, there's uh, there's a lot of pushback about the amount of um, upfront documentation necessary that has to be maintained at all times for everything that constitutes a non-quantitative treatment limit. Um, you know, if, if you have an NQTL analysis that's like 40 pages for um, prior authorization for the inpatient in-network classification, and you have to maintain that for the prior authorization uh, in-network, pardon me, in-network outpatient office, in-network outpatient other, uh, your your out of network classifications, you end up having you know something in the in the range of you know uh, a thousand pages just for prior authorization that have to be maintained at all times for every market. Um, and that's and it, one of the uh, NQTLs. And that's a single NQTL. So you having in some cases you can have like depending on how you're interpreting the NQTLs, you can have dozens of NQTLs. Um, Give us a couple. So, what's up? Give us a couple of more. We've got prior so other NQTLs, of course, like the, the way that I tend to categorize it is sort of into four buckets. So you have your like clinical policy NQTLs, like medical necessity criteria, clinical policies, uh, 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 clinical coverage guidelines that are not clearly medical necessity criteria. Those are the things that are used across all different aspects of coverage and really are developed in an, in an independent way from utilization management. Second is utilization management itself. So prior auth concurrent review, retrospective review, instances where you have plans that are like any aspect where you're having an independent review of medical necessity in an individual case against those criteria. That's the second bucket. And then the third is sort of network administration. And that's going to be everything from provider reimbursement methodologies, credentialing, uh, recruitment, plan developed network adequacy criteria, um, those are all your network administration and QTLs. And then the fourth is going to be sort of uh, everything else, like your coding edits, um, potentially your um, uh, exclusions, coverage exclusions. Um, those may be covered in your medical necessity criteria, clinical guidelines, or maybe somewhere else. Um, and those all you need to have NQTL analyses prepared to defend all of those things, to show that they're they're developed and administered in a non-discriminatory way. Um, and the new rules, like th that's current state, like under the Consolidated Appropriations Act in the 2013 regs and sub-regulatory guidance, you have to have those analyses ready on request at all times. The proposed rules like significantly increase the complexity of maintaining them, the composition of them, the, the actual technical rules about their structure and composition become more like much more intense. Um, so it's uh, it's a big undertaking. And I think the the feedback in a lot of the comments is like, look, we're trying. We don't you're, you're really unhappy with everything that we're doing. We are sort of not seeing this making a big difference and costing a ton like for everybody involved, regulators, yeah. like uh, auditors plans and it doesn't seem like it's producing like dramatic results with regards to differences in access and maybe we should go back to the drawing board and think of a different way of addressing this wow kevin i want to thank you for your time and i want to thank you and uh, david shokut for doing the article
because I think it really brings to light the issue of parity and what we've got facing us coming forth in 2024 in terms of a final rule. Hope we continue the conversation once we get a final rule and actually see what they do to us, implementation deadlines and the like. But with that, thank you very much for your time. Oh, Kathy, it's my pleasure. It's a, it's very important. You know, the, the, the we have public health issues related to substance use disorders, mental health crises are like something that everyone agrees are a really significant problem. And parity right now is where behavioral health policy is being made in, in a big way at the federal level. And so it's uh, it's super important to everybody. And so it's, uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about it. And we need more people like you to be passionate about it. Oh. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.